wow, we've been just kind of lethargic these last few weeks. I don't know what's going on. Is it still that change of time? Maybe that's what's going on. I don't know. But hey, one thing I did want to mention as we begin the service is last week, if you were a part of the services, and if you weren't, we just share with you that we had the middle school and high schoolers had a silent auction, and that silent auction was something that came out of a retreat they did where they learned about international justice mission and what it costs to actually rescue someone, about 6000 some dollars. And and these are middle school and high schoolers, and they said, we want to be a part of one rescue. And so they did this on auction because they were about 4000 They needed a couple more thousand, and they thought, let's open it up to our congregation and see how they do. And so I, I, I wanted Bruce um, Drugsma, our middle school pastor, to kind of share with us. But he's on vacation um, with his dad. He's been on this sailboat. He's, he's done other kind of trips with his dad on these things, I think some across the ocean. But he's somewhere out there, like near the Bermuda Triangle. So we need to pray for him. Uh, but I, I thought it'd be really neat to get an update from him, and you want to hear an update from him, so I thought it'd be good if, if, if Bruce could just share with us exactly um, his thoughts and sentiments um, with regard to that. So, Hey, good morning. Uh, this is Bruce Drugsman, pastor of Middle School Ministry. I uh, just wanted to say thank you to everybody at Wyzetta Free for your generosity last week at the silent auction. Our goal was to raise... for International Justice Mission to help the students finish off their fundraiser. Um, We raised over $2,200, and all of that is going to go so the students have reached their goal um, and have raised enough money to free someone from slavery. So thank you very much, and uh, I'll see you next week, but i got to get back to steering. Have a good day. Thanks, Bruce. Appreciate it. Yeah, that was pre-recorded. (laughs) <laughs> it was fun, though. Um, and Bruce said, I don't know if he had a fan or something going on behind him, but it was, you know, I was really impressed with uh, how he had the sounds as well. Um, well, we're excited about the series that we're in. We're in a series called Better Life, and it's all about the fact that um, Jesus came, who was a better version of anything you could think of in the past, offering a better opportunity to live in the presence of God, to see and experience and know the presence of God in your life. And, and this whole letter to Hebrews is about how Jesus is better and how we're to respond to him. So a couple Sundays ago, I ended the first message in this series. Chapter 1 ends with a warning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. That's kind of where the real ending of that first little teaching is, where it talks about the message and the messenger, and then it says, if this message, this messenger has come, I warn you, do be very careful not to just drift away. Just like some of you Lakeshore, Minnesota people kind of understand. You go to a cabin, you put a boat up there. You want to make sure it's tied to the mooring because you don't want to go out and see it halfway across the lake, right? Because it just slowly, imperceptibly, no one notices it drifts away. Well, I had shared that message, and, and Bill Conard, who attends our church here, came up to me afterwards, and he said, I'm going to send you a a story uh, of how that lesson was imprinted in my life. And so when you shared this, I just wanted to share with you how the importance of, of this whole warning to not drift. Not to drift away in your faith. Bill and Ruth Conard um, have served, they had served a number of years as missionaries in Peru. And then after that, for about 25 years or so, uh, Bill Conard worked with the Billy Graham Association and worked as a special kind of assistant project assignment guy right with Billy where he would go to cities and he would kind of prepare the ground to do the work that needed to be done for advanced causes, other things. Just was in Cuba doing an incredible work they've got going on there. I know that we also have someone else involved in ministry there. Anyway, all that to say, here's Bill's story. He says, Kevin, thanks for your teaching on the betterness of Jesus. 
and how important it is to hold the right view of who Jesus really is. My first short-term missionary experience took place in the jungles of Peru where my main ministry for several weeks became paddling a dugout canoe many miles around a huge jungle lake selling Bibles, New Testaments, and of course, um, Billy Graham books to lakeshore farmers, obviously translating their language. During my months there, I heard many gruesome stories of huge anaconda snakes. We're talking somewhere between 15 to 20 feet in length. And the way they would pull their victims underwater before eating them whole. Near the end of my time there, four other young men and I paddled three dugout canoes to an isolated lake. It involved navigating a small, twisting jungle river upstream for several miles between the lakes. And in that remote, unpopulated area, we had to camp. We camped and studied the Bible that day and and then continued on to do what we needed to do. And as we left that remote area to return to the villages where we were living, I volunteered to solo one of the dugout paddles. So the others were kind of, they took off and were kind of ahead of me a little bit. And, and as we departed and, and, and we're offshore a bit, I pulled the dugout up on the bank because we needed to make a quick stop, and, and, and the tail was still in the water. And I stepped away, and I came back to the river, and the canoe had vanished. I looked carefully, then spotted it about 100 feet away, caught in a log jam on the opposite bank of the river. To say I felt terror is an understatement. I shouted to the other canoes to come back, but they were down the river and then soon out of sight. It was a four-hour trip to get back through all this winding stuff to get back to where we needed to go. And he he said it would probably be a day or more before they recognized I wasn't back. So I didn't know what was going to happen. So I had to do something. No one traveled on that remote river, so there would be no help coming. And my canoe had drifted away. It was across the river, and it was stuck in the log jam. And I heard story after story about anacondas involved in log jams. The big snakes lay there hidden, waiting for victims to come down a river. In fact, once, while um, helping Indian believers evangelize farm families, we saw an anaconda sunning itself on a fallen tree in the river, and the snake was at least 25 feet long, large enough to swallow a man whole. The Indian brother on the raft with me immediately motioned to all of us to remain silent. It just was, shh, not to even move. He didn't want the snake to come after us. That's how fierce they are. Alone and not sure what to do, now I prayed, asking God to quiet me and give me a plan. As I finished praying, it was clear I had to swim to the canoe, even though I was not a fast or skilled swimmer. And then I remembered that you can't get into a dugout canoe from the side. You have to climb in over the tail because these jungle dugout canoes, if you remember, some of them are like this, and then they get flat at the tail, and that's where the fishermen, uh, these jungle, you know, they would actually, these farmers would fish, and that's the stable part of it. And he said, so that's when I realized, as I'm getting ready to swim, the worst part of this, the tail of the canoe was lodged in the log jam right where anacondas love to be, and I just began trembling. Praying and trembling, I stepped into the river and swam faster than I've ever swum before or since, and it seemed an eternity before I got to the canoe, and Another eternity as I pulled it out of the log jam, then struggled to come up over the tail without capsizing the dugout canoe. Any moment, 
I expected to feel the bite of a giant anaconda on my leg. And then suddenly, I was in the canoe. <laughs> I thought I'd get you there. Panting and trembling. Seriously trembling and free of the logjam. And I was floating down the river. And my first words, I just shouted, Thank you, God. As Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 states, it can be deadly to drift away. Losing sight of who Jesus really is, really does have deadly consequences in so many areas of our life. There's four warn- five warnings in the book of Hebrews. Some believe seven. I've, I've been studying it. I really believe there's five explicit warnings, and we're going to look at the second one today. The first one is don't drift away. It's this idea in a sense that the busyness and pressures of life, all those kind of things, can cause us to lose sight of, of our, our life with God and what it means to stay in a really heart-connected place with him. And so he says, don't drift away. Well, today he moves into a little different statement, and he's not talking about drifting away. He's talking about don't harden your heart. And it's really interesting as we look at this passage of Scripture, there's six verses, and in the first six verses, he's talking about how Jesus is better again. He's been talking about in chapter 1 about the fact that Jesus is better, um, the message he brings is better than that of the prophets. And then he starts talking about the angels who also bring a message, but they were caught up with the fact that these angels were, you know, they're supernatural, they're power. And he's saying even better than the message the prophets bring, better than the, the messenger of the angels, Jesus is both a better message and a better messenger. And he gives that warning, and then he starts to talk about the fact that, guess what? This Jesus, who is better in all those ways, is also the best human that's ever lived. In fact, he became, this God became man, and he called all of us back to restore us to where we're supposed to be, our rightful position as being those who are royal priesthoods. Basically, we are ruling people in the Spirit of God, representing God. That's our job as a church. That's your job as people. As you go out, you have the Spirit of God. And so he he sets the foundation for all this, and then he begins in chapter 3, and he says one more time in these first six verses, here's a way that Jesus is better again. He says, I want you to understand he's a better advocate. You can go look at the Old Testament and you can see that he's a better advocate, he's a better intercessor, he's a better mediator over the people. So if you want someone to represent you first and foremost before God, you want Jesus. So he takes those six verses and he explains it, and then he takes 12 verses, and the 12 verses, the longer section, is all about the warning. Because now he's really concerned. He's concerned for us. He's concerned for us that not only we might drift away, but in this process of drifting away, we might actually, when we hear the Holy Spirit pounding on our heart, eventually not hear anything as over time we fail to respond and we become calloused and our hearts become hard and we don't hear God. Hebrews 3 1 says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. In the words I want you to pay attention to, they'll occur somewhat similar again in chapter 12, but of these words, fix your thoughts on Jesus. He's kind of stopping at this point and he's saying, I want you to, to kind of collect yourself and I want you to understand that we keep our focus on Jesus. This life you've been called to isn't about learning a bunch of doctrines. is isn't about kind of go to church and be really good or anything like this. It's all about where's your focus? Do you keep your heart connected to Jesus? Jesus is your salvation, folks. No church, no other person, Jesus. So fix your thoughts on who? Say it with me, who? 
Yeah, you don't sound convinced. Say it with me. Exactly. And that's what he says. So there's two primary points. Pay attention to your thoughts about Jesus. And the second thing is we get into verse 7. So the first six of that. The second is pay attention to your heart in response to Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me because we're going to read the word of God because I think it's important that you hear it. And I want you to hear it standing up. He used to do this kind of stuff in the Old Testament. So what's... Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful to God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son of God over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we firmly hold to our confidence in the hope in which we glory. And now the warning, verse 7, for 12 verses. So, as the Holy Spirit says, and we've been saying, Holy Spirit, be welcome here. As the Holy Spirit is saying to you today, whatever it may be about, he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. As you did in the rebellion during the times of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. And again, he has to say, as just as has been said, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if it not to those who disobeyed. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts. God, I pray for my heart to be really open to what you want to say, to be soft and yielded, that our hearts be soft and yielded for your kingdom so that, God, you could raise us up to be people that rule and represent you and lovingly sacrifice and suffer for the sake of others to bring them to freedom, to bring them to a knowledge of of your love for them, to allow them to know they're forgiven, to help people who are rescuing to find a place, to help people be free of slavery. Whatever it may be, God, we call that you would make us through this work that you've done in our hearts through Jesus these kind of people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, I said in the first verse, I'll say it again, I'm glad I asked you to be seated because you could have stood it the whole time. I, I, early in my ministry, I was about 22 years of age. My wife and I were just soon married after that and I did a wedding and uh, the, the people I were marrying were about my age now. So there was just a lot of um, people older than them and so the couple's there and I'm doing the wedding and I forgot to have people be seated after the prayer. 
So these people are all standing through this whole thing, and my wife is in the back going like this. You have to, you know, I I wasn't real confident in my abilities at that time, and still not necessarily, but, you know, I wasn't real confident. And and I'm seeing her do this, and I'm just kind of of getting angry, like, what are you doing? And she's just trying to help me get these people seated so that we didn't have some ambulance come later. But anyway, so thank you for being seated. Now with with weddings, I always have the, the, the mothers to make sure they get seated as soon as I pray. I said, I don't care whether I tell you to or not, they'll follow you. So... First, pay attention to your thoughts about Jesus. Because what you think matters. Your thought life determines your heart desires. It has the ability to shape your heart. The the questions that, that you might have about how do I keep my heart maybe passionate and on fire for Jesus, and how do I keep my heart pure to follow him, and how am I going to keep my heart pliable and soft and humble, and, and what do I need to do so that I can live through this life experiencing his peace and expressing his joy? How do I do that? And he says, well, it begins in many ways with your thought life. So pay attention to your thoughts about Jesus. It's really important because if you get your thoughts centered on him, you'll understand that your heart, this is a basic principle, your heart is regulated by the fuel of your mind. Paul would say that often. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 through 9. After he's given this whole teaching, he finally gets to the end. He says, present your requests to God and, and, and give them to Jesus and, and, and recognize, you know, put your thoughts on him and give them to him and leave them with him. And then he ends it by saying this, to sum it all up, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So what do you put your mind on? What do you feed your mind? It will have an impact on your heart. And then he says something that I I just say, if you've been in the faith for any period of time, five years, 10 years, 15, 20, 30, listen to what he says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. How many go around and tell people that? You know, if you want a model follow me. Now we go, I'm a little too humble for that. I think sometimes we don't do it because we're maybe not seeking to live like that. It's okay to be humble in that way and say, do that, and I acknowledge the fact that I don't have my act together. I'm going to be transparent and vulnerable, but I can tell you I want to follow the way of Jesus, and and that's my heart desire. And so I hope I can say how I am living and what I'm doing. I pray there will be parts of it you'll be able to get out of it and be able to say, put it into practice. And then there's some stuff you don't. Anyway, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. Isn't that kind of interesting? Focus your thoughts. Fill your mind with fuel and your heart will begin to experience, he says, God's peace. You'll begin to experience his joy because your, your thoughts are rightly related to who Jesus really is no matter what situation is going on in your life. In fact, there's an, uh, in the Old Testament, there's this verse. It says Isaiah 26.3, and I'll read the King James Version. How many would like to hear the King James Version? Yeah, okay, come on, a few of you. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, he whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth thee. Don't you like that word, trusteth? Turn to you know, someone, that you, you know, your spouse or someone you're connected to, and say, trusteth me. Uh, you know, kids, try that one. You trusteth me today. Yeah, it doesn't work. Anyway, um, I want us to take a look at what the author then has to say about Jesus. Look at verse 1. 
Therefore, and he says, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. Remember verse chapter 2, he's been talking about the calling, what we've been called to do. And, and it's not just a calling that we received in creation, but it's a calling that will happen in a new creation, a new heaven and earth. Heaven isn't out there somewhere someday. It's God recreating this whole heaven and earth. That's why it's so important for us to be engaged in this world the way he calls us to. And he says, you've been given this calling, so fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge. And then he uses two words. As our apostle and high priest. And the word apostle is an important word here. It's not just a throwaway word, you know, what can I call Jesus now? It's the word that sums up what's been happening in the first couple chapters. The word apostle means sent one. He's basically saying Jesus, compared to anyone else, he's the best sent one. Not only did the prophets come with messages, but Jesus came as a sent one with a better message. Not only did the angels, who we all think are supernatural and great, and with Jewish people especially, they thought the world of them, that's why you had these stories. And and as they looked at him, he said even better than the angels, the, the message is the messenger. And that's what apostle means. You're a sent one. You and You and I are sent ones. We're also to be apostles. We're also to take that message. We're to be messengers. We're to to live that way. Our heavenly calling, where we live and where we work. You're not called just to go in and get a paycheck. You're called to bring the presence of God. You're called in your life, whether you're in school or you're in some other area or whatever it is, you're called by God to make that, in a sense, your mission field because that is where the message and and, and you as the messenger go. You're an apostle. You're a sent one. But Jesus is the better, most high apostle. But then he goes on and he talks about the high priest. In, in, in just chapter 2, he, he alludes to the high priest, and you're going to see this. He's got this wonderful way of kind of coming to an end of a section and just kind of shadowing or just kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen in the next one. So when we get to the end of this one, he talks about rest. So next week we're going to talk about a better rest. And, and any, how many like rest? Come on. Okay, I expect you to be here next week because you're going to hear about a better rest, okay? So he kind of foreshadows it. Now he talks about the high priest. And he says Jesus is better than any person in the Old Testament you could ever imagine. And so a lot of uh, our minds might go to, if you have any Bible, Bible background at all, is the high priest and Aaron and all the priests that follow behind that. But in his mind, the one person, and the Jews would tell you as well, who is the advocate, who interceded, who was the one who mediated for the people far better than any other high priest, who would it be? Moses. We read about it. Right. Moses. Moses was the guy. Moses was the guy that God called. Um, you see, Moses tried to do it all on his own, and then he ends up killing someone. He goes for the desert, and he's in the desert for 40 years. God calls him. God calls him back to intercede, to mediate between Pharaoh and the people. It's a big deal. He's coming in and he's saying, I want you to let my people go. Uh, We're going to worship God. We're going to begin to show people there is a one true God in our worship. In in doing this, we'll be set free from slavery. Do you understand that any idol in your life, whether you're called to greed and you want money and possessions, or it's a title and you want approval, or if uh, if it's lost and you're trying to, all those things, when when you put that first, it makes you a slave. It'll make you a slave. You'll, you'll go after it because that's what you want. So he said, we're going to set these people free. It's the, the setting free really came because they worshiped God. When they worshiped God, they were set free. So he comes in, he does that, he, he leads them to the, to the sea. They're upset and they're angry because they couldn't take the shortcut. And, and he, he holds up his staff, God parts the water, they go through it. They come to the, the wilderness and, and God wants to reveal what it means to be a community. 
And God's in the mountain, and, and, and God wants all the people to meet with him, and they all go, no, 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 we, we don't want to dare step close to God, so Moses, you go for us. The best mediator you could imagine. So Moses goes for him and goes for them, and he gets the ten laws. And the ten laws are just what I call ten basic rules, because really you think about them, they're just ten basic rules to live in good community. You know, like don't murder someone. That's pretty good, you know? Don't steal someone's self stuff or, or, or steal someone else's spouse. You know, that kind of, anyway, so he comes back down. He's mediating and what's happening. They have a golden calf. So he goes and he says praise and he intercedes and on behalf of the people. And then as you go along, you see time and time again, the people are grumbling. They want to kill Moses. They want to kill Aaron. They want to, and he prays for them. And God says at one point, you know what? I am gonna, I, 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 I'm, I'm tired. I'm done with these people. They are just nothing but complainers. Or, you know, I, let's, Moses, you and your descendants, let's make them the people. And Moses intercedes and says, God, don't do it. Because all of Egypt, all the world's looking on these people whom you've called out. And then if you don't, they're going to look at you and it's going gonna, it's gonna to mire your name. So God, hold up your name. And God works with the people. Although people refuse to enter into the fullness of the experience that God had intended for them. And as he says, they end up in the wilderness. I think they knew God, but I think they were cut off from all the good things that God wanted to really give them. And there's a lot of believers who just live in the wilderness. You might be there right now. You just live in the wilderness. Because at some point, you maybe said, you, all this stuff started happening, and you just kind of said, forget it, and, and you're not experiencing what God wants you to experience. So we go into this chapter, and it says, verse 4 through 6, every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. And the Christ is the faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and hope in which we glory. So here's what he says. God builds every house, verse 4. Moses was merely a contractor, but what I want you to understand is it wasn't the architect. He was a servant, faithful as he was, Verse 5, he was just a servant. He built a shadow. He was just looking for the things to come. All that he built wasn't really, it was something that pointed to something. It was a sign that pointed to this. It, it was a pattern. You know, He didn't have the real dress. He had just a pattern. He, he didn't have uh, the real building. He just had the blueprints. All that was to point to something. That's why Jesus is better because he shows up. And Jesus is not just the, 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 um, the one who is a servant. He is the son who is both the builder and the building again. You see that? He's the message and the messenger. He's the building and the building. And in referring to the building, he's not talking necessarily, it's kind of an allusion on the temple, but it's also the Old Testament covenant and the promise that was made there. And in every way, he's saying, Moses gave you all that stuff that pointed to something else, and Jesus is it. He's God. And just as Jesus is now the house of God that, that brings the Holy Spirit so also we are his house. The whole idea here is that Moses was in a tent and a tabernacle that went through the wilderness, and that's where God was, and that's where that Moses would meet with him face to face and said when he came out, it glowed because he knew and was in the presence of God. And so he was a tent and a tabernacle, and David comes along. He just really wants to build the house for God, so he builds this beautiful temple and, and allows for Solomon to build it, and here is where God is housed. And this idea that God is housed in a house, and then all of a sudden Jesus comes along, and Jesus says, hey, I'm the house. The Holy Spirit dwells in me, and anybody who will connect themselves to me will be a part of that house. You will be living bricks built into this house. God has an incredible power that he can do through the church of God when the church begins to move into it, and, and we move out of our apathy and our indifference and, and we begin to start to realize that God has called us 
Not just to live a nice life and a comfortable life, but us, and I look at this West Metro area, us to serve it in such a way that Jesus shows up. I don't know what that means for you, but we're going to be talking more and more about that in the, in, the, in the days and months to come. So here it is. Here's this picture. There is no one who compares to Jesus, verse 6. And we're his house, if indeed we hold firmly to who? Jesus. Your thinking fuels your heart. There's a pastor, author, Bill Johnson, who makes this statement, and I really like it. He says, I can't afford to have one thought about myself that God does not have. Think about that. I can't afford to have one thought about myself that God does not have. Part of a relationship with Jesus is beginning to understand what's in God's heart for you. How he views you, what he thinks of you. And you might be hearing a voice for years that has come from parents or have come from a situation. You may feel degraded and worthless. You've been in, in, in God is saying, I love you. I made you. You're not junk. I love you. You can't afford to have one thought about yourself that God himself doesn't have. So you've got to kind of get in connection with Jesus. You've got to start saying, what is the things I'm thinking about Jesus, and do they line up with the word of God? And if that is the case, then I want this to begin to fill my life. Now here's the, here's the second part. Pay attention to your heart in response to Jesus. And I could go through the text verse by verse, and we're not going to, because I just want to pull out some practical conclusions. Because one way to look at this is just, he's saying, here's what happened to the Israelites. Here's, in a sense, the signs of when their heart was hardened, as well as here is the cause of the hardening. So I want you to just think about two things. And, and, and you can read this on your own, but there's two things in this hardening. He says it twice. He quotes Psalm 95. This was a big deal in the life of, of Israel, that the people never entered into the land of promise. They never entered into where God wanted them to be. And so twice he, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Here are some signs that you might be hardening your heart. And I don't have time to go through them in depth, so I'm going to go through them quickly. One is constant complaining. If you ever, you know, I have wonderful family members who will go, boy, you sound really whiny. You know, the people of Israel were given bread. You think about it, they're in a desert. They should be happy to have bread. Oh, but they wanted meat and cucumbers and, and onions and leeks and, and, and melons and, and, and fish. And, and we're just tired of this manna. What is it? I think about it, part of it is immaturity, but part of it can be a hardening of your heart. Immaturity is with a child. So my, uh, my brother-in-law and my sister, when, years ago when their kids were younger, they would every Sunday go to a place called Boston Market. It was then called Boston Chicken. Anybody remember that? And, and, and you know, these kids were, they, they were treated well. So every Sunday they would go to Boston Chicken. And then one day they're driving up and their kid in the back goes, Boston Chicken again! Well, we understand that, you know, I, you know, God might get that as a kid, but if you're now 10 years, 20 years in your faith, and you're constantly complaining, what does it say? God, you say I haven't been good enough to me. Yeah, I got this trial right here, and, and God might be going, yeah, yeah, it's not about complaining. So complaining, another one is, 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 is what I call quarreling. There's, there's just what I call continuous quarreling, They're constantly having strife. And, and, and it's, it's towards Moses, it's towards Aaron, it's towards Miriam, it's towards tribes, it's just back and forth, and it's, it's really a constant strife with God. 
You see, sometimes we can argue with others in authority because they're just kind of representing God, but in reality, your strife is with God. That's just a sign of a hard heart. And in that kind of situation when you're in strife, you find a lot of strife. It's possible that maybe both or even one person, you just got to check your heart. Is it getting hard? Because not only complaining, strife is a perfect sign of that. Another one is this, and often um, you will find yourself angry with those in authority. Why? Because the person in authority is really the one who's supposed to make sure that you get what you want. No, right? We know that as parents, we're not here we're to give you what you need. But what happens sometimes is you might be in a situation, could be in a church, could be, and, and you're responsible to get me what I want. And, and, and now, if you find yourself often in a place where you're angry with authority, it, it may be that you're really angry with God. Listen to what he says. It's kind of an interesting thing. Um, at one point, they say, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, which wasn't anything new. They grumbled a lot. And the whole assembly said, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Fire the bum. These guys have led us nowhere. And then the whole assembly talked about, catch this, he'd done these wonderful things. The whole assembly talked about stoning Moses. And here's God's response. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people Treat me with contempt. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say Moses, you, whatever. Moses, you just represented. They're really treating me. And not only is there this kind of, this attitude which we, we complain, and not only is there this strife that takes place, and not only is there sometimes this, uh, this sense of it's the authority, if they would just do it and they get their act together, then everything would be okay. Baloney. The, the fourth thing is this, the failure to live in what I call accountable relationships. One of the ways you start to harden your heart is you start to move away from allowing your life to be accountable. And you can even be in a small group, folks. You can even be close to people, but if your life isn't vulnerable, if you're not authentic, if you're not showing up with what's really in your heart, and you're not making space for one another to really do that, you will have no ability to do what he says here. He says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Because it happens incrementally, step after step. But if someone is in your life and you're opening your life, the only one who can hold you accountable is you. It's not really the other person. It's not, God's not going to go and say, well, Kevin, how did you do in holding him accountable? He's going to say to you, how did you do in making yourself available to be accountable to someone else? So those are the signs. Let me share with you um, what I would call three causes. And they kind of follow the signs in some way. And the very first cause of what I call these hardening of the heart kind of things that go on in our life is this. Your thoughts are fixed on benefits and not relationship. The Israelites were always focused on what could you give me, God? They wanted bread, they wanted meat, they wanted the easy way, they wanted a golden calf like other people have. They did not want God the giver. Your focus is often on the gifts and not the giver. When you start doing that, and it's about, and I just, you know, if you just give me this, then things will be good. If your thoughts are on the gifts, God says it's the wrong place. You will begin to experience a hardened heart because you're not about a relationship. You're not about getting to know me and getting to know yourself. You're just about wanting what you want for your life. He not only talks about that, this idea, this focus on the gift for the giver, the idea that our thoughts are fixed on benefits, not on the relationship. Your thoughts are fixed on being filled, not fulfilled. The Israelites wanted their physical hungers filled. 
They lived from one fix to the next. In fact, at one point when Jesus came and he did a miracle that was similar to what Moses did with the manna, he fed all the people bread. Afterwards, they come to him and they go, man, we're following you, we really love you, we want to make you our king. And he goes, you don't want to make me king, you just want me to provide bread for you. You're really concerned about the, the superficial, the surface kind of things. But what I'm really concerned about is the heart, what's really significant, and what is the cause. We, I do this. I know you do this. Don't you, get, don't you get focused on the symptom rather than on what really significantly is causing it? I mean, I can just, just in your own marriage, you know, if you would just do this. It's, it's just constant blame. If you, if, if you would do this, and God is saying, guess what? I have come, not to just to give you gifts, I've come to be the giver in relationship with you, and in, in that relationship, I have come to work deep in your heart. I have come not just so you can have kind of a nice marriage, I haven't come so you can just maybe do somewhat well in work. I have come to work in your heart and your soul and your being so you can experience the fullness of me, and in the fullness of me, you will see things around you begin to move by the Spirit of God. And then the last thing he says here is that your thoughts are fixed on seeking what I would call control rather than dependency. Another way to say this is, is it's, it's about self versus about the Savior. Do you know that the trials that, that we go through, the experiences that we have, they're meant by God to lead us into deeper dependency. In fact, in the wilderness, they would go through one trial after another. You know that each trial, you can go through each trial, and each trial was to teach them something more about who their God is. It was to fix their thoughts more fully on who this God really is. And each one of them were to lead them into dependency. In fact, if you go through all the people that they had wars with as they would go through the wilderness, you watch each, just go through each one. Every strategy for conquering that person or that enemy was different. Every one. There was one that, 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 that when they did it, there was not one that wasn't different. And the whole purpose of that is because he was saying, he knows, he knows me, he knows you. Then if you can figure out how to do this, this, and this, well, then this should happen. And it's all about what I can control. And the whole purpose of possibly your trial right now is for you to experience at a deeper level than ever before who Jesus really is. So are you going to allow God to take you into that trial? And are you going to complain? Are you going to kind of be in strife? Are you going to have this stuff? Or are you going to move into it and say, God, you know, I'd really like this gift, but you know what? You're the giver, and I'm more concerned about a relationship. And as we go through this, God, I don't want you just to treat some of the symptoms. I want my heart to be so fully aligned with you. And as I go through this, God, this trial will bring me to the end of myself. And I'm not going to try and get out. I'm going to try and, I'm actually going to try and become dependent on you and watch for you to move in our situation. And so he concludes. And, he, and, and, and his whole point is here, your thoughts really matter. Because what you think of Jesus and the things you're going through right now are opportunities for you to fill your mind so that your heart can become more pliable and pure and passionate for God. It's all about getting in touch with the real giver of the gifts. It's all about walking in such a way that God begins to deal with the, the, the sin that's in our life, the selfishness that causes the problems, rather than fixing the things out here. Because in this process, he is teaching you. He is teaching me. To depend on him. And if you're like me, I want to be the savior right, of my own situation. 
I think he's saying, how many would, he's kind of almost asking, how many would like to get out of the saving business? Trying to save someone else, trying to, how many would like to get into the business of being a person who just says, God, what are you calling me to do? I'm going to follow your way. And if you call for a sacrifice, if you call for me to suffer in order to go through this trial or whatever it is, I'm praying that through this you'll do something in me and you will do something in people around me. I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to ask the worship team to kind of close us. Uh, and I love this, this old hymn and the words to this. Um, and I just pray that as you kind of let God work in your heart right now and bring before him whatever, however he's been kind of knocking at your heart, I would ask you to hear it and respond.